Well, it's good to be with you for obvious reasons. Um, it's good to be back healthy enough to preach the Word of God. That's all I care about, really. Um, let's pray together, you guys, one more time before we start here. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your sovereign grace. Lord, we listen to the words of that song that we sang, Lord, and we know that you are a God that is most concerned with our spiritual condition. We know that you're a God that answers prayer for faith and for grace. And so, Lord, we know that you're concerned with our maturity. We know that you care about our inner man. We know that in the context of all of our trials and all of our tribulations, that what you are producing is is, is gold that is purified, that is unalloyed by things that are of the flesh and that are short of your glory and that are less than what you want us to be in Christ. And at times, Lord, we know that your sanctifying work can be trying, even for the whole church, as we find ourselves going through this life which at times just seems like a wilderness of sin, uh, just a desert of trial and tribulation. We understand, Lord, that you are the wellspring, that you are the rock that flows with living water and that all of our hope, life, and satisfaction is found in you. And so we pray, O God, that you would help us to set our eyes on Jesus, the author, the one who began our faith, the one who establishes us in the faith and the finisher of our faith, the one who will bring us to our intended goal, our intended end, no matter how dismal at times and how far away, unrealistic at times that seems. We know that based on your word that our heavenly hope is not a pie-in-the-sky wish. It's not just a dream. It is the greatest reality in our lives that we will go from this age to the next because our God is faithful. And so, Lord, we bank, we trust, we rely completely on your faithfulness to do that. We know that what you began, you will complete in the day of Christ Jesus. And we look forward to that day with great expectation in our heart. And so, Lord, would you allow there to be a swelling, a, uh, an overflowing, a a melting of the heart for these things, that we would set our hope fully upon you because you do not disappoint. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to the end of chapter 2 here of this letter, and with it, uh, the Apostle Paul sort of introduces us to a concept uh, that is very important and what we can uh, call the church Militant. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. That's an ancient medieval word that was used in church history, especially in the scholastic time. People like Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic Church, uh, used that, that term. But the Reformers picked that term up as well. And they used it to characterize the church in the present age. The church in the present evil age, as Paul calls it there in Galatians chapter 1. God delivers us from the present evil age. However, we are still in the present evil age. And part of that present evil age is that we will be in a stage of militancy. No, I think 
when I use the term like the church militant, we have to qualify that a little bit because what we're not calling for is any sort of vigilanteism or violence, okay? But we're talking spiritually, that spiritually the, the age to which we belong and the stage of redemption that we are in currently is a militant stage. It is, a, it is not peacetime. It is not triumph time. It is time for us to engage well, in what the Bible calls spiritual warfare where we are going to face all sorts of setbacks and all sorts of tribulations. Matter of fact, the church history, there were three terms that were utilized. The Catholic Church believed in these three terms as well, but they believed in the church militant, the church now presently on earth. They also believed in what is known as the church triumphant, and they wrongly believed in the church expectant. That was the church in purgatory, people that were sleeping and waiting for the church triumphant. Well, we repudiate purgatory as heresy, but the church militant and the church triumphant is certainly true. Uh, we are in a state right now of militancy looking forward to the time when we will be in a state of triumph. But the reason I mention this is because if you're not careful here, you'll miss what's going on. The Apostle Paul has established a very young church in Thessalonica. These are young believers. Um, Commentators suggest that Paul may have been there maybe a month, maybe a little bit longer than a month. These are, this is a young church. These are young, needy disciples of Jesus, and he needs to desperately return to go back to Thessalonica after he had been driven out of there by Jewish persecution. Remember, he went from one city to the next. They drove him out of Thessalonica. They started up a, 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 you know, a, a, a near riot almost you know, trying to overthrow the church at that point. They arrested a family. They threw them into jail, and they had to sort of uh, you know, buy their way out of prison, really. And then they went off to Berea, where in Berea, once again, the Jews followed Paul, even in Berea. And then from there, they went off to Athens, where the Apostle Paul uh, ended up uh, encountering the uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. But it seems like in every city that Paul went, he faced opposition. There's no difference here. Here, he says that he had been taken away from them. Well, he'd been taken away from them, not by his own choosing, not by his own desire, but because the gospel faces great opposition in the world. Now, what was Paul's desire? Well, Paul's desire was to reunite with the church, as I stated. What's Paul's desire? Look with me uh, to chapter 3, verse 10, because there you see what he wants to do by reuniting with them. He says, um, night and day he kept praying most earnestly that, he may, that, that uh, we may see your face. He says, and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So the whole purpose of him wanting to go back to Thessalonians is to establish a pure church, is to make sure that they are grounded in the faith. However, because of the stage of the church in which it's in, the Apostle Paul was hindered. So let me make some clarifying comments here about what the church militant is because this affects your life and mine and may even clarify some things for us as we reflect on our own not just um, you know if you're a missionary you resonate with this instantly you're like yep that's right (laughs) i've been hindered by saying i know exactly what he's talking about but for us who are sort of more just at home base we're at the hub we're at the central church we're not out as missionaries being sent out 
for us, sometimes we fail to see the gravity of our militant state. And this has a massive implication, not just for your life individually, but for our life corporately. Let me just bring a a couple points here. Number one, the church militant will face opposition to unity. I say unity because that's the whole point of Paul's desire. His desire is to be with them, to see their face. As a matter of fact, he said he had great desire uh, 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 to see their face, and he wanted to come to them and be with them, but of course he was hindered. And so the unity of the church is going to be greatly uh, uh, undermined. Isn't it amazing? I mean, we've been around for, as a New Covenant church now, for what, 2,000 years? You ever read a book on church history? You understand how much schism there is in the church? You understand how much division there's been theologically, doctrinally, ecclesiastically? You understand how much the church has suffered over the centuries? All the blood that has been shed? All the people that have been ripped away from their congregations? I mean, just right here in the early church, you see evidence of that time and time again. I mean, the Apostle Paul went so far as to say in Philippians chapter 3, he lost everything for Christ. And scholars, they surmise that what Paul is talking about there is that he lost his community. What he had before being converted to Christ, he lost his family, he lost his community, he lost everything that was familiar to him. It was all gone and stripped away from him at his conversion. Now, we're going to suffer hardship, and that's the... That's the first thing I want to point out here is that in terms of our unity, our calling as a church, the implication for our calling is that we are going to suffer in our calling as a church. Now listen specifically to this because we don't want to overlook the the context here. Specifically, it's in the context of global missions. That's what's going on in Paul's day, global missions. It's the outworking of the Great Commission. And that will become really clear or really important rather when we get to verse 18 as we talk about Satan hindering Paul but no this was a this was Paul on his uh, on his first missionary journey uh, going around spreading the gospel spreading the word of God and the word of God was growing mightily right that's what the book of Acts is all about the book of Acts is all about the increase of God's word it's all about the advancement of the gospel and that's the context in this letter I know we like to immediately sort of personalize it and make it about ourselves. But the context is that Paul is a missionary and he is spreading the gospel. And in that missionary work, he finds great opposition. Um, It cannot be any other way. I think that's what I'm here to say today. It can't be any other way. Not right now. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Any sort of sort of over-realized or premature sort of uh, understanding of triumphalism is completely wrong-headed. Here, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, if you would. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just to see this, that triumph is later, not now. Right now, we are called to suffer. So what am I preaching today? What I'm telling you is, Christian, don't be surprised by your trials. Why? Because it pertains to the age in which you find yourself and the stage of redemption that you're in, right? Because let's be honest, brothers and sisters, friends, let's be honest, we are so often easily, not number one, surprised by our, our trials, number one. Number two, we are sort of uh, moved and shaken by our trials. And so we want to be pillars of faith. We want to be immovable in the work of the Lord 
And one of the ways that that begins is by having a realistic understanding of the Christian life that we're in right now. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 8. When someone has this sort of over-realized eschatology, when someone has sort of a, um, you know, sort of an, a, a, a hyper-optimism, you, you need to be careful because look at what Paul says. The Corinthians had this. The Corinthians had this sort of over-realized eschatology. It got so bad that people were even unwilling to work because they're understanding was, well, why go to work if Christ is going to return any moment? You see what I'm saying? See how quickly you can kind of veer off the path. And Paul says, you are already filled. This is sarcasm on the part of Paul, by the way. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. (laughs) Paul's saying, uh, you know, I've Paul's there reflecting on, on his missionary journeys and the suffering that he undergoes. Be nice to reign right about now, right? And these uh, Corinthians were beginning to spread a doctrine that they were, in a sense, reigning with Christ right now, but in an overrealized fashion, in an unhealthy way. Because there is that positional sort of union with Christ where we are, even as Paul goes on to say, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. We are in Christ. But here, he says that, That's the wrong attitude. Because look at verse 9. Look at the contrast. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Wow. That's a little different than your little triumphalism of the Christian life. He says, as apostles, apparently God has condemned us to die. I mean, you're reigning and we're dying. How does that work out? He says, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and And to men, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. Again, that irony. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. And so he goes on and on and on here to talk about his present sufferings as saying part of the picture of being in a militant state is that we are called to suffer. It can be as serious as martyrdom or... It can be as subtle as that missionary that just can't get that email to that church in China. And he can't explain it. Google was working just a second ago. And now he can't even communicate with a basic email. Something is afoot. Something's afoot. Not just the calling, therefore, to suffer for global missions, but overall, God's plan here is to sanctify us in our calling towards striving towards unity. Uh, look at the words back in Thessalonians. Just look at the, the language that Paul uses here, because it's, um, it's very encouraging, actually. He says, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, notice he says here, not in spirit. May, I love when Paul makes those subtle little qualifications that if you're not careful, you're just going to read right over them. He says, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. So what Paul is saying here is that overall, in his spirit, that there was a bond, there was a love bond with the church that could not be severed through persecution, through persecution. But turn with me in Ephesians to see this bond of faith that I'm talking about. Because it's encouraging because Paul doesn't throw in the towel. Um, he's discouraged. There's no question about it. He's hindered. He's stifled. But he doesn't throw in the towel. He, there's hope here for Paul. He's not hopeless. He's still hoping that because of his spiritual communion with the saints... 
He cannot be ultimately severed from them. Look at Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1. What an incredible passage on church unity this is. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, the prisoner of the Lord, which means that as he wrote this prison epistle, he was in prison and constantly in prison and ultimately died in prison. Uh, But that just shows you the militancy of what I'm talking about, right? The Apostle Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling which, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's that spiritual unity that the church has to have and does have. It's sort of a reality and an imperative. It's an indicative and an imperative. We are united and we need to be united. It's both. And therefore, the Apostle says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That last note, by the way, verse 6, that's sort of the rationale for everything. Because God is one, because God is over everything, through everything, and in everything, therefore, we are united in and by Him. Notice Paul's desire for this unity. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. I think one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul was such an effective pastor is because he had a sincerity about him. He had an indomitable sincerity about his love for the church. He genuinely loved these people. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't fake. Uh, look, just look back in Thessalonians here. Look to uh, chapter 2, verse 8, because we saw this here. Paul's absolute love for the church, his call, not just his call for unity for the church, but his absolute uh, uh, sort of unashamed affection for the church. He says in verse 8, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you had become very dear to us. Paul was living out what John says there in 1 John chapter 3, that we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. He loved the church so much, he was willing to do it. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, he says, I'm being poured out as an offering on the altar of your faith. He was a sacrifice for them, in other words. You can see this affection even clear from our text here in verse 17, when the Apostle Paul says, I have been taken away from you. The Greek word that he uses there, aparphanizo, that participle there implies being orphaned against your will. So think about that. So Paul is very interesting here, by the way, as just a a side note. In chapter, uh, earlier in chapter 2, he talked about being uh, like an infant in their midst, right? And that was his demeanor. He just had a simplicity of love about him. And now here he's depicting himself as an orphan. The Greek word there literally meaning orphaned, having been orphaned from you, stripped away. And what he's saying is that he longed for the family of God. He longed for the household of faith. That was Paul's heart always. Unlike many Christians today who are almost experts at avoiding Christian fellowship, the Apostle Paul loved the church. He didn't want to avoid the church. He loved the church. 
And his love was rooted in a desire for the people. A, a true pastor here. He wanted to be with them, among them. He wanted to see them. He wanted to spend time with them. He wanted to invest in them and pour his soul and his life out for them. That's the church militant and its unity. We're always going to have opposition. The precise nature of this opposition may take different forms, but the actual root of it all is found right here in verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So, therefore, the second point is that the church militant will face opposition from Satan. Or we can even say satanic opposition. Because I think a lot of times, you need to do a study on this on your own, but I think a lot of times when the apostles and author of Scripture uses the word Satan, he uses it in sort of a general category, saying that, in a sense, what he's saying is that the satanic influence, the satanic forces, the spiritual forces of wickedness that he talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, all of it, all the demonic activity that can come out of the, out of the, 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 the uh, that can hinder the work of Christ. It's kind of a general hindrance. You know, I think one of the hardest questions that Christians answer today is, how do you know when Satan is hindering you? How do you know when it is a satanic hindrance? How do you know when Satan is the one opposing you? Now, obviously, I think so often people falsely conclude that every sickness, every tragedy, every suffering, you know, every struggle that you have in the Christian life is owing to some sort of demonic or satanic oppression, right? You're late to work, you hit a red light, well, the devil's in the red light. Not really. You probably should have left early. You get pulled over for speeding, that's the devil trying to discourage you. No, it's not. That's you being a lawbreaker. Just be honest and repent. (laughs) Right? So it's not that Satan is behind every tree and behind every bush. You know, this is notorious, by the way, in the Pentecostal world. In the Pentecostal world, binding Satan is as common as blessing God. It just, it seems that Satan is part of your, you know, part of every conversation. They almost give Satan like God-like attributes that he has, suddenly Satan becomes omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. It's amazing what Satan can do. And it's amazing how Satan can be in every Pentecostal church on every single or every, any given Sunday at the same time. No, he's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. I've had people actually tell me to whisper certain things because Satan will hear you and then he will know. Huh? The boogeyman is out to get us. But that's what it does. It sort of, it sort of, it sort of uh, uh, characterizes Satan in this cartoonish fashion that's just absurd. It's, it's not what Paul is talking about here. What is the context, by the way, of this verse? Paul speaking about Satan hindering him comes in the context of Jewish persecution. Isn't that amazing? You know what's amazing about that is that John in Revelation talks about the Jews who oppose the gospel, Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, the Jews that are opposing the gospel, that they claim to be Jews, but they are actually part of Satan's synagogue. 
He goes on to say that in Pergamum, which Pergamum, by the way, was an ancient hub of paganism in the Roman Empire. It was actually like a guardian city. It was like the gods of Pergamum were there to guard the city, to guard the empire. And he said, and, and, and there in Revelation 3, the, 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 the people living in Pergamum were facing opposition from their own countrymen, just like the Thessalonians were, so that what John is saying is that whenever Satan uses the political, spiritual, and socioeconomic powers of the world to oppose and to persecute the church, to use John's words, there is Satan's throne. Satan's throne. See, Satan's throne means that he sits on the world and its powers and its influence and its culture. It affects everything. I mean, think about it. John says, and this is in keeping with his own theology, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John goes so far as to say, the entire cosmos is in the lap of the evil one. Wow. That just shows you the extent of the satanic influence that we face. He's everywhere. He's in everything. He's in the entertainment industry. He's in the political climate. He is in the the, the economic structures of the world. The elite people of the world are influenced by what? Not Jesus Christ. Mainly, they're influenced by an antichrist hatred that often manifests itself by persecuting his church, his body. That's how it comes. It can come in an individual level. Paul talks about that. Satan opposing you, Satan tempting you, Satan causing you to fall, Satan puffing you up with pride, or it can come on a corporate level, Satan having an advantage over an entire church, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, when the church does not obey the gospel. Both are part of the militant church, and both will characterize our lives in this age. That's why it is a precious, precious promise that Jesus gave us when he said at the founding of the church, when he said the gates of hell will not prevail. What are we holding on to if not that? The church militant at times feels like we are just under Satan's throne and influence. Like I said, I mean, just take a look at our insane culture. My wife and I, I often rail on stuff. You know me. I pick on stuff in the culture to just jump up and down about. Well, my wife and I were out walking the other day at some stores and we saw a billboard. Why does it always have to be associated with beauty products, by the way? I did this before. I feel like deja vu here. They had a massive poster up there with homosexual couples showing each other affection on the poster. Remember last time I talked about this? A makeup store had a guy on the, on the front window of the store putting makeup on like a girl. This one had actual couples loving each other on the poster. And the poster said, I see the future. If you don't think you're living in a militant stage, in a militant age of the church, you're deceived. You're not awake to what's really going on. It doesn't matter how many Christian maxims and sort of slogans come out of the White House or some politician that love quoting, you know, the Bible here and there. I mean, when's the last time a politician stood up and spoke directly against pornography? When's the last time some politician stood up and spoke directly about how much God hates sexual immorality, how much he hates the evil of abortion? 
No, it, it doesn't happen because they don't have the same goals that Christ does because this is not the age that is the triumphant church. This is the militant age for the church. Let me, let me come to that, that point. Let's talk about the church going from a state of militancy to going into a state of triumph. Because this is good news. Look at Paul, what he goes on to say here. Satan hindered him. He couldn't come to Thessalonians. But look at his ambition. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? That's crucial. That's, That's what gives me license to talk about now the church triumphant. Because had Paul just said, you know, you are our crown and joy, period. Well, then he's not necessarily going to the eschaton. But because he says, at the presence of our Lord Jesus, at his coming, the Greek word there, parousia, his coming, meaning the second advent, meaning the return of Jesus Christ. For you are our glory and our crown. This is why now we can speak of the church triumphant. What a precious truth, by the way. I mean, think about our brothers and sisters that are living under the oppression of Islam around the world. Uh, Think about that. Just got done talking to a missionary who has friends that are living in Yemen. And, man, it's so good to have these conversations for me and for you. But it was very encouraging for me because he was describing to me the state of the church in Yemen. And I thought, we're so blessed. We're so blessed. The worst thing that can go wrong on a Sunday over here is maybe the sound's not working or we're getting some feedback or you know, something like that or baby's crying, I've got to walk out of the sanctuary miss part of the message or something like that. This guy's telling me they've got to meet probably no more than 10 people so they won't be detected. They've got to close the blinds, close the shades. They've got to be real quiet when they worship. They can't scream and shout and yell. They can't sing beautiful songs you know, out loud. They've got to do it real quietly. Recently, that same missionary told me of a friend of his that was burned to death because they discovered he was a Christian in Yemen. And what good news it is to know that all of this suffering is temporary. All of this suffering is going to end one day. See, one of the most remarkable aspects of Paul's theology is his eschatology. And it's not just that Paul is trying to pin the tail in the Antichrist kind of eschatology, you know, pulls out his timelines and his charts, you know. That's not really what he's... Paul's eschatology is a lot more profound than that. Paul, I guess if I would summarize it, saw everything in light of eternity. Paul saw himself standing in two worlds. He had one foot in this world and he had one foot in the eschaton. And he understood... That everything that he did, everything one day would be heading towards this great judgment, this great assize where God would weigh his works. Amazing. As a matter of fact, you can find this all throughout Paul's statements about his churches. He, he is terrified that in laboring over these churches, in light of the, of the reality of the eschaton, Paul says repeatedly, I fear that I'm laboring in vain. That in the end, your faith will not last and you'd have proven not to be true. He says it to the Galatians. He says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 11, I fear for you, perhaps I have labored over you in vain. 
In Philippians 2, verse 16, same thing, close parallel. He says, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that's the second coming, same context, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He understood that the stage, the the, the militant church stage that he was in was worth it. And it will be worth it one day when he gets to glory over the church. Why? Why, brothers and sisters? Because what is the church? Right? What is the church? The church is the apple of God's eye. Don't you understand? It is the grand accomplishment of redemption. It is the reason why Jesus stayed nailed to the cross and didn't come down because he saw in the purview of his mind, he saw into the recesses of eternity and there he remembered that God had covenant to him a kingdom of people, an innumerable multitude of people, ocean upon ocean, multitude upon multitude of, of a throng of redeemed men and women who will worship Him for all eternity. We can't see what Jesus saw, what He looked into, what He knew. But He had the church as the very apex of redemption. He knew that it was His bride that one day would come down out of heaven beautified, prepared for the bridegroom. He knew that it would be the city of the living God one day. He knew that it would be the new Jerusalem. He understood that the church would reside in a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. He looks forward to that eternal covenant bond that we will have with God for all eternity. Didn't I tell you this before? Where God will pitch a tent over us. What was spoken about by Isaiah the prophet when he says there will be a canopy of glory over all the earth. In other words, the complete and total reversal of what we see today. You know what we see today? A canopy of misery. What we see today is a canopy of demonic oppression. What we see today is a canopy of evil all around us. If you have eyes to see, if your eyes are open, if you can pull back the veil, if you can really see it for what it is, I know that our culture labors to hide it from us. I've been witnessing to one of my neighbors, and I was so encouraged this week to hear something that I hadn't heard before, and that is that my neighbor is finally waking up to the futility of life, and he's actually sunk into depression. Praise God! Because it means he's waking up that he doesn't live in Disneyland. I am so angry right now with, with, with what's going on. Now, hear me out, okay? What's going on? with the Indian community around us. You understand we're inundated by Hinduism right now? Uh, my street, I mean, my neighborhood, it's, it's like I'm on the mission field. I feel like Paul all of a sudden. On my street, it's like Hindu after Hindu after Hindu after Hindu after Hindu. I remember a couple years ago, well, Trish and I were driving down the street, and we saw all these Christmas lights. We're like, oh, wow, look at that. They're putting the lights up early. It looks beautiful. And then I come to realize, oh, wait a minute. Those aren't Christmas lights. Those are for a Hindu festival that they celebrate in uh, November, not in December, or early December, something like that. has nothing to do with Christ or Christmas, right? And she's like, well, Christmas is not about... Okay, relax, everybody. I know where you guys are going. But it showed me, my goodness, 
I am surrounded by paganism in my own neighborhood. And you know what I'm mad about? All the Hindus and all the Indian folks that I talk to, man, I wish we had them in our church. I'm trying desperately to, you know. They worship the American dream. I'm not kidding you. Every, every, every Indian family that I talk to, that's all they want to talk to me about. It's a brand new house they bought, the car they're buying, and how they're into this, and how they discovered this at Home Depot, and what Costco's offering. And they're just worshiping the American dream. They think it is another God on the altar. And, I, and so the reason I'm excited for my neighbor friend is because I'm excited that finally he's waking up that this is not, this is not heaven. I know coming from the utter poverty of India and where he came from, and he came from poverty. And to come here, it, may, it must feel like heaven. But it is not. It is a world full of disease and strife and violence and lust and, and uh, uh, ignorance. And, oh man, it, it's a world full of diseases and sicknesses and mystery illnesses that you can't get over. And, and, and just you can't get healthy ever. Can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> You can go to the gym, you can do the latest organic thing, you can, you know, get off gluten and everything else, and there's still something wrong with you. It's because God is saying it's not about being gluten-free, it's about being sin-free. And until we're sin-free, we will always be weighed down with what the Bible calls the flesh. You can dollop the flesh, you can dress up the flesh, you can put makeup on the flesh, you can, you can photoshop the flesh, you can do anything you want to the flesh, but at the end of the day, it is the flesh, and the flesh will, succumb, will, so, so, it will succumb to decay. Paul says the outer man is perishing, oh man, I think part of what's wrong with the church so much is we're so vain, we're so incredibly vain, let's just admit it, we care so much about externals. We care so much about outward beauty and pomp and prestige and, and all this stuff. I think Paul the Apostle, if he'd come into modern-day evangelicalism, I think he'd sit there going, huh, I don't know if I really fit in here. <laughs> yeah. he, he'd lived on the road. Uh, he says the world thinks of us, the apostles, as the scum of the earth. They didn't have a privileged place in society, brothers and sisters. They had a very low place in society. They were regarded as scum. They were regarded as pests on the culture. Where am I at? Oh, yeah. The church triumphant, three things. Number one, the church triumphant will go from faith to sight. Number Number two, the church triumphant will go from longing to fullness. And number three, it's supposed to be number three, The church will go from sorrow to joy. Isn't that beautiful? Paul says, Who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? What is he talking about there? What he's saying is that one day this beaten, battered, bruised bride will appear in glorious garb, will be so beautified, so sanctified, it will be glorified. And it will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus where the Apostle Paul will say, finally. The Apostle will say, you know, it, is, it was worth it. It was all worth it. Not forgetting, brothers and sisters, that Paul one day had to put his head on a chopping block. <laughs> 
And this man is saying, one day, it will all be worth it. When we stand with him in glory, oh, you have no idea the sense of vindication. I think God has to glorify your body so that you will have the passions and you will have the ability to enjoy the vindication. He's got to glorify us just to give us the capacity to enjoy what he's going to do for us in heaven. Because we can't right now, even in our weakness, we may sing the songs, Oh God, fill me with fullness. You know, we sing to the Lord now in worship. Give me everything. Give me more of you. I want to see you. The reality is, is nice song, but you couldn't handle that right now if it happened anyway. He'd incinerate you like Moses. Like he told Moses he would. Can't see his glory and live right now. That's why the church, when the church becomes the church triumphant, he imparts to us the capacity to triumph. Because right now we can't. Because right now we're way down with sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil. We'll go from longing to fullness. Right now we long for Christ. Then we will have all of His fullness. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Familiar text, but it is the text that contains this so, so wonderfully, beautifully. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet appeared yet as what we will be. Wow. Basically, that's John the Apostle Paul saying, or uh, uh, the Apostle John saying, we can't even imagine right now. We can't see it right now. We know that when he appears, it's the second coming, it's just a little reference to the most cataclysmic event that will ever transpire in human history, i.e., the second coming of Jesus Christ to the world when he comes back in flaming fire to judge the world. Yeah, that's in that word. He says, we will be like Him. Wow. Because we will see Him just as He is. We will finally see Jesus as He is. When He came back in His resurrection, He came back and to a degree He was veiled. He had veiled His glory to be able to come back and reveal Himself to His disciples. Even on the road to Emmaus, they couldn't even recognize Him. But when we see Him at His coming, He will come. His feet will be like pillars of fire. His hair will be white as wool. A sword will proceed out of His mouth. His eyes will be ablaze with fire. He will be the great lion of the tribe of Judah. No longer a meek, humble, weak lamb. He will be a conquering champion king. And he will conquer and we will conquer with him. See, we're not afraid of triumph, but we have to be realistic that right now it's not our time to triumph. We triumph through suffering right now. That's how we triumph. We'll also go from sorrow to joy. All the sorrow one day will be vindicated. All the tribulations that you're going through now, don't you need this encouragement? I had somebody come up to me today and say, man, what a week. That's right. What a crazy week. You had a crazy week this week? Don't raise your hand, please. We don't do that in this church. I had a crazy week. Some of you guys heard of it. I didn't know I was going to be able to climb up. Now I'm thinking about going down the stairs. (laughs) For those of you that don't know, I I threw my back out this week. Some, those stairs look about 20 feet down to me right now. We'll see what happens. 
Robert, you want to come up here and get ready? <laughs> we'll see what happens. Oh, man, I'm just so grateful, you guys. Um, I can keep reading my notes, but the reality is, is it says it all right here. Paul says, you are our glory and our joy. And what he's saying is that the church is his number one priority. What he's saying is that your, your priority as a Christian is spiritual. That's first. You're going to be more disappointed in the Christian faith the less spiritually you, the less spiritually you think. If you think primarily about health, oh man, you're going to be so disappointed. If you think primarily about fun, you're going to be disappointed. If you think primarily about entertainment, if you think primarily about leisure, see, what's wrong with the church today in many places and in many ways and in all of us to some degree is that there is a lot of seeking peace in wartime. You see? Um... Trisha's aunt was talking to us about taking her grandchildren to um, to Washington to go look at the monuments and 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 to go look at different buildings and you know to take a tour down there. It got me thinking, you know, about we often memorialize soldiers on the battlefield. We have them in different postures. They're triumphing. Maybe they're holding a weapon or firing a cannon or something like that. But you know, one thing we never memorialize we never memorialize a soldier sleeping, right? Because that wouldn't make no sense. It'd be a total contradiction. You're, 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 you're wearing, you know, a, a uniform for battle. You have a weapon for battle. You're on the battlefield. Why would we take a picture, make a sculpture out of you sleeping? It would be a total contradiction. In the same way, Paul tells us, awaken. Everything about the Christian life is about being awake, being sober-minded, being vigilant. Understanding that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. Understanding that there is an armor, a spiritual armor that you need to put on every single day because you are in wartime. You're not in peacetime. You can't ever, 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 ever let your guard down. I remember being at a friend's wedding and the location where they had, where they were, they had, they had tigers in cages. Okay, it was a little extravagant, I thought, but anyway. It was part of the, it was part of the facility, okay? You know, I got about 15 feet from that tiger, and he roared. I was like, get me away from that fence. That fence looks too thin, right? I mean, it like put the fear of God in you being next to that massive. And yet Peter says, we have an adversary. And what is he described as? Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What a contradiction it would be if I were to go up to that cage and lay down and go to sleep next to that pretty little, that little kitty. No. That means I don't take it serious. That means I'm not aware of the danger. That means that I'm not, I'm not aware that that thing can devour me if I take my eyes off of it. The same thing with spiritual warfare. You let your guard down, you're lunch. So we need to be vigilant. We need to be sober. And we need to be ready because we are whether you like it or not, in this world, we are the church militant. We are not the church triumphant yet. Man, what does that mean, guys? That means we're going to die of cancer. That means we're going to suffer heart attacks. That means we're going to get crazy diseases. That means missionaries are going to die on the, ba- on, the, on the mission field. My buddy, you know, I love him so much. You think I want him to go into Yemen and risk that? I love him to death. He's going. I can't stop him. He's crazy. And he may suffer that. 
I don't want that for him any more than the early church wanted that for Paul. Paul said, I won't see your face anymore to the uh, Ephesian elders. I'm not going to see you anymore. They wept. They wept on his neck. They were so devastated at the saying of that. We're going to suffer all sorts of things. And man, this is, praise God, I'm a Calvinist. Because if I wasn't a Calvinist, I don't know how I would look at my trials. If I wasn't a Calvinist that believed that whatever my God ordains is right, I'd be like, man, what is that for? That makes no sense in the universe. But because I believe in the sovereignty of God, I understand that a loving Heavenly Father has ordered sovereignly these trials to come into my life. And He ordained them for my good and for His glory. If I don't have that to hold on to, I am doomed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Father, we pray for protection. We understand that one week can bring so many challenges. We understand that our lives could change in one day drastically, the quality of our life. And yet, Lord, what's most important of all is our mindset, our attitude, where, where we set our thoughts, what we're thinking about, what we're prioritizing, what is our mission in life, what are we living for, what makes us tick. And Lord, wherever there are less worthy, less excellent things, wherever there are flat-out carnal things, wherever there, well, definitely where there are sinful things, but wherever there are things that are not, that are devoid of spiritual content, would you sovereignly remove those things and replace our ambitions, replace our, our desires, our goals for that which is 